like what we do here at Clever, please consider supporting the show. To make a one-time donation, click the link in the episode description. Thank you. Today's sponsor is brought to you by Nature Made, the number one pharmacist-recommended vitamin and supplement brand. Nourish by Nature Made is a personalized vitamin regimen that removes the guesswork of selecting supplements that are specific to you. Backed by 45 years of science, delivered right to your doorstep, and costing on average less than $2 a day. Nourish is your one-stop shop for customizable supplements. Visit Nourish.com to get started today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. Support for Clever comes from Turnstone. Before we get started with the regular show, we have a special story we want to share with you. Recently, Turnstone launched a new customizable office furniture collection called Baseline. We were intrigued, though we talked to Mark McKenna, the brain behind the design, to get the lowdown. I'm Mark McKenna. I'm a design director at Steelcase, concentrating on turnstone, work tools, and education. And I do what I do because it's hard, not because it's easy. It's hard to innovate. It's hard to make beautiful things. And I love the challenge. You grew up on a farm and you were fixing machines and tinkering. Do you feel like that might be the impetus or the I guess, the beginning of your interest in industrial design? For sure. It can be traced back exactly through my upbringing. Our farm was one that had John Deere machinery. And I decided when I was, I don't know, in seventh grade or so, that I wanted to be an industrial designer and I wanted to design John Deere equipment. So when I grew up, that's exactly what I did. Connect the dots for me from the road between tractors and the workplace. And what do you find really interesting about the state of the workplace and how it's evolved since you started working in the industry? It's really different now than it used to be. We're going through a state of change. Culturally, we're moving from an era where great emphasis was put on the coherence of a group in terms of dynamics. From that, to the comfort of an individual and the expression of an individual. When you work at a big corporation, typically all of these decisions are made for you by a person whose job it is to make safe decisions. The point is that when a person has to make decisions for a large group of people, you end up 
with a choice that might not appeal to very many people, but it also won't offend anybody. Yeah, the least offensive is frequently the least inspiring or the most banal. Right. And now we're seeing a swing away from that towards interiors that are kind of intentionally polarizing, where a designer might make a risky move with the specific intent of creating some impression on people. This goes hand in hand with another aspect that I don't want to ignore, and that's the rise of a mobile device. Oh, yeah, that's important. The owned workstation is now a place almost exclusively to grind out really hard work. All of that light-duty work, editing, thinking, reading email, sorting your calendar, that can be handled literally anywhere. And it switches the value proposition. You end up moving from a place where you have to be to get the work done to a situation where you can choose where you would like to be to get the work done. Oh, yeah, of course. Get the money spent on kind of shared collaborative spaces, lounges, coffee table type environments. Those monies are going way up. I think what companies are saying with their dollars is that they're valuing either loan contemplative work or the casual collaborative work as much or more than they are the heavy-duty heads-down work that you need a workstation for. So I want to talk specifically about Baseline, this new product that you've designed. Can you first just tell us the story behind its name? Well, it's all about music. A lot of us here at Turnstone are kind of music heads. And really, the essence of Baseline is this very flexible, very adaptable, still really attractive leg system for tables and couches. And what it does is it provides a certain rhythm. In a space outfitted with baseline, you have a rhythm of the legs because the legs are all the same. And they hit the ground at an expected repeatable interval. But what happens on top of the legs? Well, that's different. That's a lot freer. You can do things with upholstery. You can do things with the top of tables. And that felt more like a kind of, I don't know, jazz element or a guitar or something over the top of the syncopated bass line. So what this product has done or project has done, baseline, is we've had to, on the design side, intentionally take a backseat to the customer's desires. For example, on this product, you can get the legs in any color and we don't limit you on the tops really at all. So that means I will have created conditions where there will be tables out in the world that I personally really won't like at all. I will not be down with those choices. On the other hand, we've also created conditions where there is a great flowering of choices and materials and expressions, most of which I never would have come up with. So by giving up control, I'm allowing some questionable things to happen out there. But what I'm also allowing is a great deal more of beautiful and unforeseen things to happen. The tractor designer is letting wildflowers grow in the cornfield. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> that is hilarious and good. I might have to 
steal that. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. You can find out all about the Baseline Collection and get inspired about your own workspace at turnstone.com. Since I was a little kid, I used to have this idea of designing and making everything I use. I'd be looking at my shoes and thinking of all the things, you know, the knife in my hand to the light switch to everything around me. I was like, I want to make everything from scratch. I want to, like, develop the plastics to make my own light switch. And too ambitious of a plan, obviously, but we would just take apart everything we had and build stuff. And I would, God, I was trying to make uh, whiskey when I was, you know, from the encyclopedia. We tried to build a rocket engine in our bedroom and we almost burnt the place down. Hi everyone, I'm Amy. And I'm Jamie, and this is Clever. Today we're talking to designer, maker, and jack of all trades, Tyler Hayes. He's the man behind cult favorite furniture brand, BDDW, which is known for well-crafted, timeless designs in hardwood with extreme attention to detail. Also under his stewardship is a brand called M. Crow, which deals in home goods, clothing, kids' toys, and ceramics, among other things. He grew up in a tiny rural town and learned to skin a raccoon, sew pants, and tend a pansy garden from a very young age. And that's just the beginning of a very, very long list of things that he's able to do. He's lived adventurously and weathered some rough times, and he's got more energy and stories than we can fit into a podcast. But here's a start. Let's talk to Tyler Hayes. I'm Tyler Hayes. I'm the owner and founder and designer of BDDW and M. Crow. I'm headquartered in Philadelphia where my workshops are and my showroom is in New York City. And M. Crow is based in Lostine, Oregon. So I spend time between those three cities, but mostly in Philadelphia. I design and make a number of things, long list of things. And I'm also a painter and sculptor originally and still do that. Most of the things I do for uh, a combination of passion and to make a living. So talk to us about your childhood. Where did you grow up? What was your family like? I was making things since I was a little kid. When I was five years old, I was the uh, flimsiest kid on the block. I had a pansy garden and my grandmother gave me a sewing machine. And I would sit next to my mom and try to sew bad clothing and... And water my pansy garden and take care of my hamster. But I was, uh, I got into making stuff when I was, uh, and drawing and stuff like that. Uh, those pursuits since I, you know, since I could, since I could hold the, the tool to do it. And my parents are awesome people, both creative in their own ways. My dad is musical and graphically talented. And my mother is probably one of the craftiest people you'll ever meet, as well as mechanical. If the wash machine broke, she would take it apart and order the part and put the new clutch back in. And, you know, so I would help her when I was a kid. So I got a lot, I got a little bit of both of their traits, I think. But I grew up in uh, rural eastern, northeastern Oregon, inland, small mountain towns. And so kind of a western, wouldn't quite call me a hillbilly, but uh, compared to what I do now, I'm definitely, I grew up a hillbilly. Uh, You know, we had wood heat only. We had, you know, when fall would come, it was a big crunch to get the wood in for winter. And uh, we'd, you know, if you didn't get the wood in for winter, you'd probably die because it was 30 below zero in northeastern Oregon. So very much uh, upbringing that was similar more to, uh, well, you know, earlier part of the last century, I think, in some ways. Oh, wow. The county I grew up in is twice the size of Rhode Island and has no stoplights and 6,000 people. And we were at the end of the road in that. So it was, uh, you know, an hour and a half, two hour drive to the closest stoplight and to a chain store growing up. 
that was my childhood. It was awesome, and I wouldn't trade a thing about it, but it was also before the internet, and so that was in the 70s. So it was, you know, before answer machines, before VCRs, et cetera. So, yeah, like, we didn't have a radio station growing up. We had a small local radio station growing up, so I really was, like, removed from the whole, you know, the whole thing. Clearly, it inspired you to have a sewing machine given to you by your grandmother and to see your mom be one of the most handy people you've ever known and to actually have to make sure you got enough wood in before it got cold so that you guys could heat your house all winter long. For sure. I mean, I don't know. I guess it, I don't know if it inspired me. I feel like it helped me back because I, you know, it was a longer journey to get to where I am, but it certainly is a large part of who I am. I think it was a little, uh, logging town, uh, if you could call it that, there really wasn't much industry there at all. Um, it's where M. Crow in that area is now. But I literally had friends that, you know, they wouldn't, if they didn't get the deer or elk, their family, they wouldn't have meat in the freezer all winter kind of thing. Yeah, school would literally close for deer season for a week. So you grew up with a direct connection to your own survival. Like that self-reliance is embedded into you. I grew up, you know, getting meat from the grocery store and not really even understanding where it came from until much later in life. And I also just kind of took it for granted. There was Jolly Green Giant vegetables in the freezer and, you know, hamburger helper. And we, <laughs> we were just going <laughs> to read our books and get straight A's in school. Yeah, I, I, that's a good way of putting it. More than most Americans, I definitely was attached to survival. There was a feeling a little more mortal. You know, when it's 30 below zero and pipes freeze in a little cabin, uh, you, we, we literally would take a sled up to the creek. We call it a creek. And fill up pots of water just so you could take a dump and flush the toilet. And if you didn't, you know, <laughs> you couldn't. There was nowhere to go. And it was, it was brutal. It was, it was fun. I mean, it's all I knew, so it wasn't like I romanticized it. But looking back, it's like it's pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool looking back. I mean, at the time, though, were you, were you like, fuck this, I want Nintendo? Or? <laughs> well, if, if, I, if I knew what they were, yes. <laughs> I mean, I've always been, like, straight as an arrow, but I had, like, the... You know, I was like the little gay kid, basically, as far as like, you know, everyone called me that. That's why I say that. But I was into, you know, cool clothing and making pretty things. And, you know, I was like a a little homemaker kind of kid. With your sewing machine in your pansy garden? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. I I, I only say that uh, at the risk of sounding like an asshole. But um, I was, you know, people called me fag all the time when I was in the 70s. So, uh, I mean, I think it's important because designers kind of always have to justify their interest in aesthetics and or their attention to detail. And frequently men also have to explain that they can have testosterone and an attention to detail at the same time. Yeah, to like pretty stuff and like to kill raccoons and you know have to explain that to your buddies and I that I like girls too it was uh you know when you're in fourth grade yeah. I always had a I always had a, a huge passion for like pretty things or just like even weird stuff like I let my hair grow long when I was a kid and I cried when my mom would cut it and I used to cut holes in my clothing and I had this like favorite shirt and I was like a little OCD about like things and stuff and you know if I had a couple of pairs of clothing that I would just fetish over and just would you know you know, cut certain seams on them and let them fray. And, you know, I was a little weird kid with a lot of like ticks as well, like facial ticks. And I used to grunt and squeak and they tried to put me in a special class for a couple of reasons uh, back in the day. So I was a weird kid <laughs> growing up in a really small town. And I literally ran a trap line and, you know, used to club raccoons and mink to death and skin them and sell them at the fur market and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I had a very broad spectrum of experiences as a kid, at least in that realm. That's really fascinating. I have to ask, you mentioned um, having a washing machine. So I assume you had electricity. 
So did you have like a TV or a radio or any kind of exposure to the things that were going on, you know, outside of your small town? We had a radio, of course. We had TV, but it was ABC, NBC, CBS. It was before mm-hmm. cable was invented. And MTV came out, I think, when I was in junior high or my freshman year of high school or something like that. Yeah, freshman year of high school, MTV was invented. And that's when they invented VCRs. And that just, you know, took the lid off of culture. And musically, though, I think the radio station situation was like one local country station, literally like a local station. It still exists. It's awesome. But it's like, you know, it has advertisements for the local tire shop. But there wow. was one station you could kind of get at certain times of the year when, the, you know, there was a, out of the Tri-Cities, I think it was, that played like rock and roll. And the funny, there's that uh, uh, Lou Reed when I put on the New York station and I couldn't believe yeah. what I heard. There was one time I like actually listened to whatever and I heard it was a couple of songs, a David Bowie song. And there's that one song, uh, who was that guy? Iggy Pop, I think, that I heard, like, blew my mind. <laughs> it was kind of, oh when I hear that, gosh, I yeah. songs, like, oh, my God, you know. So I got turned on to, like, alternative culture, I guess. Uh, I knew nothing about it. But, man, when I saw Gary Newman on Saturday Night Live, I snuck up late, and he came out in his little wheelchair thing, and he was singing that song. And I was like, what is this other world? <laughs> <laughs> It sounds like you're a seeker. So I'm wondering in your teenage years, being the weird kid, also being this this sort of melange of things that seemingly don't go together. What were the teenage years like for you? The one thing cool about where I grew up is there was a small like campground in the resort area, really small. So it was like people from Portland would come up and it was like in the early 80s and when kind of new wave or whatever was invented and there was that scene we kind of like invented our own scene just from the backs of magazines we would order cds or no they weren't cds they were tapes from the backs of magazines from the weirdest sounding bands because there's nowhere to buy music or read about music and we would order weird sounding bands and we'd get these tapes echo and the bunny i remember i ordered that there was an ad in the back of a magazine and i was like i read it and i ordered it right you know i had to write a thing please send me this and i included a check and it came and it like blew my mind obviously it's a great band i got really lucky with that one yeah anything that sounded weird we would buy it i had a bunch of buddies like four or five buddies that was like we were really like a bad after school special i mean we were like <laughs> these semi-punk rock kids with our own version of like mountain punk and one of my buddies liked gordon lightfoot a lot so we somehow adopted that as to being like cool enough to like be in the club <laughs> and we'd cut our hair in this weird way and spray paint our clothes you know in this little mountain town that everybody wanted to beat us up um you know, so it was like, and everybody thought we were satanic. Whoa, that's my biggest fear, is uh, being just different enough from the, the locals that they think you're satanic, and then they want to yeah, crimes exactly. on you. It was a funny, uh, and a little tiny mountain valley that looks like Switzerland kind of thing. So it's really like, a, for me, it was like intense. And I ended up becoming like a semi-suicidal punk rock kind of runaway kid in the end. I told my parents I was leaving, but I went to Portland when I was 16. I left home. My parents are awesome, so it wasn't any like I had trouble at home. I was like the hung out with the other suicidal teens, but I was like the kid who had a great home life. <laughs> I was like, uh, in the 80s, I was like, uh, lived with the family of a friend that took me in. They were uh, religious, and they were going to, you know, helped out this wayward teen. And started playing music. I played in bands in the Northwest, kind of seeing that early, uh, early through that whole scene. I was in the, deep in the Northwest music scene from the beginning in the early 80s to the, you know, mid-94, mid I think, when I left. So what did you play in these bands? What's your instrument? I played guitar and sang. I wound up playing in a band and a couple different bands, but then I wound up doing like a solo thing. So I would just do like five songs and open for my friends' bands. And that way I could drink for free and talk to all the girls, basically. That was the, nice. that was my, uh, 
Yeah, and I didn't have to carry equipment. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I bounced around a bit. I wasn't going to finish high school, but I graduated high school in the suburbs of Portland. And then you said in college, you kind of bounced around, studied theater for a little bit, and then eventually you began painting. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? It's clear to me now that I have like a really broad interest in just the way things work. I started in theater for a year at a community college, did like playwriting and acting and didn't, uh, didn't click with that as much. Wound up at University of Oregon studying computer and physics. I'm interested in everything. Bit of that, and I wound up, I was always good at art, and I was always, you know, either making music or making, uh, I thought I wanted to be a chef for a while. I thought I wanted to be, I kind of, you name it, really. Every six months, I would change my mind that I'm going to be this or that, generally in some creative or scientific pursuit. Um, I was a really smart kid growing up, and just naturally, with math and computers and physics and science and, you know, whatever. But a little ADD. So I never really found one thing and went all the way in with it. But I always took a drawing class here and there just because I was good at it and whatever. But it wasn't until college that I started painting seriously and actually took an art history class and understood where art came from. Because I really grew up in the middle of nowhere and really like just knew nothing about the world. I started painting. I took a painting class and one great professor, Ron Graff, who kind of changed my world a little bit about how to look at things and what it really was to make art or to make things, how you paint and see things, basically, Mm -hmm. that there was a whole nother world inside of that. It just wasn't like, oh, I'm a good drawer or or whatever. Um, And I'd found that in music, but that was just a different kind of pursuit. It was more fun just writing songs and pretending I had a lot of angst, I guess. But seeing things and how to apply that to what I was doing kind of changed my world to discover the, you know, that infinite abyss of whatever art you could call it, whatever. That to me is just all the same thing, design, art. Back then, I was like, fuck it, this is like just all one big thing. And you just got to jump into it and you have to learn the science and you have to learn the, well, I don't know if I not a big spiritual person, but there's this, that side, whatever the word is for that part of it, that is like larger than us. And then there's the craft of it. And there's the, you know, all those things was what I was interested in, just what a creative idea and applying your humanity to those pursuits, I guess. I was obsessed with that because having discovered it, you know, I did battle with uh, suicidal tendencies my whole childhood or youth. And finding those things kind of opened my eyes to a deeper desire to be alive, basically. That's powerful. It was, yeah, it was a really intense time. I was a sweet kid. I was really shy. Also a little bit obnoxious and kind of insecure. But I had a lot of ideas, I guess. So there was a crucial part. When I was doing my BFA year, a couple of professors liked me and thought I had talent and gave me a scholarship that I didn't apply for. So I ended up doing my BFA year and got really serious about painting. And then the gallery saw them and... Uh, gave me a solo show contract, which was, uh, you know, wasn't that big a deal. But uh, to me, it was like, wow, you know, I started selling paintings and making a small living while I was still in college. Well, that's a huge deal. One, that's a, that's, you know, it's hard to stand out in the art world. But two, that also gives you your first taste of success, right? Real success? Yeah, exactly. It kind of like messed with my head a little bit. It actually was awesome, but for some reason (laughs) I couldn't see that. (laughs) Um, But I mean, I was just like the only kid in the program. I was having a solo show in Portland and had a contract and, you know, people thought I was an asshole because of it. It was just a weird time uh, to have to believe in my work enough to actually have a show and stuff because I was just messing around. You know, and I was actually selling paintings and not making a lot of money, but, you know, I would sell a painting for like $1,500 when I was in college in the early 90s, which is, you know, it was like, wow. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I moved to New York and wound up helping my buddy on a construction site. I kept painting and wound up just building stuff. I just fell in love with New York and the energy of New York for really 
you know, New York's kind of was a perfect place. You know, you can kind of hide in the in the crowd, so you know you can still be kind of shy, but you can still then not give a shit about anything at the same time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it was an interesting time. It was like right when before New York was cool again. It was back, you know, at the end of the '80s when New York was like the least cool place on earth. I was there in the end of the '80s too, like '89 to '91. So it was like wasn't cool then. Remember that? Like no. I got there in the early '90s. Yeah, you were there when it was like, what the hell are you doing there? No one else was going. People started to go there in the early 90s, but you go, you went there when it was like, you know, you were running from the law or something. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, uh, it was tough, man. It was a rough and tumble place. It was like, uh, even in the early, early 90s. But I was there like when they just, I, there was some, I think Giuliani or somebody came in and started cleaning up the city. There was yeah. some political thing that happened. As well, it was, it was that uh, zeitgeist of, you know, there was Friends and there was Seinfeld and there was all those New York shows on TV that, let people know that, you know, real humans lived in New York. It wasn't just <laughs> spray painted subways. Um, so, you know, I hit it at a really good time, I think, when it was just the economy started to come back and the Internet was invented a few years later. And it was like, you know, a good time to be there. It started out in uh, Greenpoint, you know, when it was still dirt cheap. And that's uh, that led to the launch of BDDW? Yeah, which wasn't so much of a launch by any means. I was, uh, okay. and it's great that you'd been in New York then, because you remember there was like, you must be not as young as you sound. So that, if you were there then, um, but you remember back then there was like no magazines, there was no cool restaurants, there was you know right. architects were people that built skyscrapers that no one cared about. I mean, there wasn't any cool anything. Mm-hmm. There was like Calvin Klein and Giorgio Romani, and there was like nothing. And then there was like Interview Magazine, and that was like. I'm sure there was other cool stuff, but you had to like know somebody and be in the underground to find it. Right. The underground was cool. It was like rave culture was starting. Drag queen culture was getting its foothold. And it was yeah. Kind of and the rest of the world didn't know it kids. existed. Yeah. Yeah. New York was like sketchy. I mean, unless you were just like in Soho or somewhere else. Yeah, it was, it was sketchy. So you remember, there wasn't much to do. I didn't really launch BDW. I was like a handyman, and there was a couple of fashion companies around, and I worked for a buddy of mine who was a grunt architect at a tiny little firm that this guy had in his, you know, in his living room. But he was working for, you know, did some stuff for like Ralph Lauren or Tommy Hilfiger. Or, you know, there was like connections of real companies you've heard of. And to me, that was super exciting. So I was like a grunt worker guy for helping installing showrooms for Tommy Hilfiger. That would, you know, I'd get the job doing the showroom and charge him money to do it. It was, I thought it was crazy. Yeah. So I, uh, I rented a caving and warehouse in Greenpoint in a really sketchy fringe section. Um, had a loaded 357 Magnum. I slept with under my pillow or under my bedside table. Holy. You know, I had a beat up old pickup and couldn't afford a haircut kind of kid. You know, I was a dirt bag. <laughs> renegade dude, uh, painter guy in, in deep Brooklyn. Before that was cool. Outside of my building, there was a chimney that said BDDW on it and the old brick things. It actually was an EDDW um, from a you know century old factory. So I was like, a, it was kind of a joke. I was a handyman. I would make my little uh, invoices out to say BDDW and I'd draw a picture of the chimney and they're all handwritten on you know, napkin basically invoices for my <laughs> crappy handyman jobs. So that's how it started. And it just kept evolving. I was just passionate about the way things, building out my loft and everything. I learned how to plumb it and wire it and getting jobs doing stuff. And then years later, I wound up being like a full-fledged design-build contractor, doing like stores in Nolita and stuff when that started. At night, I'd build furniture. And then, you know, during the day, I'd be hanging drywall. It'd be me and like a couple of buddies would like 
gut renovate a store. You know, so I was the electrician and the plumber, and we'd hang the drywall and mud and tape and do the whole thing ourselves. So I guess we'd do that to live, and then at night we'd build furniture and play music and stuff and have fun. And uh, So it just evolved in, into this thing. It was really like never a launch or a start or anything. You know, and then the internet happened, and we had a website at one point, but we didn't, you know, it was just like an opening page for six years. That was it. <laughs> So I had this, you know, multifaceted career where I had literally gangsters working for me. And then, you know, I'd get to hang out with the high-end design people on the other end. And uh, at the end, I was just, you know, I was, I was having fun the whole time, as, as stressful as it was. But at the end of the day, part of me was like a, a, an old-school, small-town guy. I wanted to have a family and make a living and get married. And, you know, there's a, a traditional part of me. And then there's the other part that was just like crazy, you know, work 12 hours and go out and get drunk and then get up and work 12 hours again, New York guy. So I had this like dual trajectory that <laughs> never really balanced out. It finally has. So I wanted to have some sense of direction in my life because I, you know, I never did have a lot of uh, emotional stability. Mm-hmm. So it became this like really complicated uh, way to grow up, I guess, or become of come of age. I think in my twenties to have those responsibilities as well as have this like crazy creative interests that were by definition really irrational when it comes to like paying the bills. And so I feel I kind of like balance that out by just working seven days a week. Right, not really balancing it, just <laughs> just doing it all. And eventually out of that, though, we it's New York City. And back then there was very few people doing cool things or making stuff. And, mm-hmm. you know, so we stood out and we got a good connections with different people in fashion or whatever. And people knew who we were, just like we were like the dirtbag guys to call to get things done so we could tear out your tile and fix it or design you a chair and make it or, you know, figure out a finishes for a store fixtures for Ralph Lauren or, you know, whatever it was. At a certain point, it was like a little too crazy. I decided I just need to be something and do something. And so I just said, well, what, you know, what's the easiest, most functional thing as a business, you know, my skill set and the tools I had at the time. And it was furniture, which was kind of ironic that it was the last thing I was usually interested in. And I wanted to be an architect. I wanted to be an artist. I wanted to be a chef. I wanted to be all these other things. And Never really thought about furniture as being my thing, but, you know, I could do it and I liked it. Let me see if I have this correct. So you're in New York, you're doing all these multidisciplinary design builds, fix it, inventing creative projects. Eventually you get a showroom and start selling furniture out of the showroom. And then slowly the furniture becomes the focus and the bread and butter. Yeah, basically. I decided like I need to kind of like grow up a little bit and pick one thing I want to do because, you know, doing everything was not that functional. I just didn't have enough bandwidth, basically. I just learned that idea of like, oh, there's, you, you but can't dude, hit your you're limit. doing everything again. So that didn't last for very long. <laughs> if somebody paid my bills back then, I would have stayed doing everything. Okay. Clearly, I have, <laughs> I have like uh, unending interest with things. So, yeah. If I haven't even started with all the stuff I've actually been doing since 1995. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I know, but we do want to talk about that. So, BDDW has become a success. You're known for timeless handmade designs with a lot of organic materials. By that, I mean wood and metal and hand-forged hinges and attention to detail. You're also known for creating things that are well-built and timeless, and you're not a trendy guy who introduces a bunch of new stuff every year, but you do always have new projects going on, just not necessarily furniture collections. Am I getting right, that right? Yeah. yeah. And skipping forward, I'll just like, define that whole decade, which would need another hour. But yeah, I did get into like figuring out how to get into a store. I borrowed some money from a friend and 9-11 hit and we closed the first store and then we opened up that big one 
bad timing, a million crazy failures to get to getting that store open and through its first year. Crazy to even take that huge leap. You know, we had not enough furniture to fill the store when we opened. It was just like a small few of us trying to make this thing happen with a lot of... Uh, <laughs> you look tired. I take it the caffeine, toothpaste, and adrenaline face serum aren't working? Well, maybe you should ask Santa for a Nectar mattress this year. And if the big guy brings you another unicorn finger puppet, don't worry. Because mattresses start at just $499. And you get $399 in accessories thrown in, as well as a 365-night home trial and a forever warranty. Go to Nectarsleep.com today. Support for Clever comes from Master and Dynamic. We know you love great design and care about quality audio. So we know you will love Master and Dynamics headphones and earphones. Brilliant sound and design motivates everything they do. So Master and Dynamic products are the perfect gift for the music and design obsessed alike. And after you see the craftsmanship and premium materials, we know you'll want to get a pair for yourself too. Whether you're looking for luxurious and comfortable over-ear headphones, portable and power-packed true wireless earphones, or an immersive wireless speaker, Master and Dynamic has what you need to upgrade your listening experience. Hear your favorite podcast, clever, obviously, and your favorite songs in a whole new way. Visit masterdynamic.com and use the code CLEVER for 10% off your new pair of headphones. Terms and conditions apply. That's masterdynamic.com. A lot of passion behind it, and uh, sometimes yeah. we lose sight of uh, rational, <laughs> rational <laughs> things. We got it open, and it's a beautiful space, and I knew that that space would be like something I could like take a breather and just go, okay, now I can start filling this with anything and probably get away with even doing crappy stuff, and it'll, you know, it'll look better in this space. So I opened a showroom just because I didn't know how to really sell my stuff to other people. Um, and I love the idea of retail and I've always been a little entrepreneurial. So we opened that. It took a lot longer than people think for it to be successful. Um, and we would still be running painting jobs or doing renovation work on the side during the first couple years of that. But eventually people started buying stuff. I mean, we hit like the worst timing. So we signed the lease on that big store the a week before 9-11 hit. And I borrowed a bunch of money from a friend to give a huge deposit on the place to get a good deal on the rent. <laughs> so it was like first time I'd ever borrowed money from anybody and I borrowed it to give to the landlord. So I was locked into this lease for 10 years, paid like five months or 10 months up front or something. But I got a good deal. So I couldn't back out of the space, even though lower Manhattan was completely shut down and we weren't selling enough furniture then to make anything work. And then there was no work for our design build construction. It was a really hard time. You know, I thought I had a stressful life before that, but just mountains of stress and, you know, how are we going to make this work? Because I had nothing to fall back on. I would be like moving back to Oregon and, you know, go work for my buddy doing landscaping or something if it didn't work. Right. How long did you exist in that post 9-11 depressed economy where you were just stress ridden and not selling? It was a good two years of actual hell. Oh, God. I tried to throw in the towel, and then I had employees who believed in it so much, they wouldn't let me quit. They were like, well, you know, fuck you. We'll keep coming to work. And, um, you know, it was, it was really tough. But, you know, it just made us learn how to be a better business people. And, uh, you know, for me to just, like, really understand the minutia of running a successful business when times are really shitty and how do you get stuff done. And so 
I think I learned, you know, I think I learned half my skill set growing up poor and <laughs> using wood heat. The other half I learned in the post 9-11, trying to launch a store that was way beyond what you should have done in the beginning. The timing was good because there was also nothing going on. You know, we opened the store like, you know, I think it was February after 9-11, right before we went to war. It was like when, like, everybody was closing every magazine and everybody was getting laid off and it was just like the worst time. And then we opened this giant store downtown. I don't think there was an opening for six months in New York before we opened that store. So we did have a huge turnout. I think everybody in New York came because it was like, who in the hell's opening something? Right. And everybody's looking for a bright spot at that point. Yeah, too. no, exactly. Or just something to do because there was yeah. like, you go out and have drinks and talk about who got laid off basically and who's moving. It was a tough time in New York. You know, it was a beautiful, brutal time in New York City. Um, but then to launch in that big, beautiful store and you open up and there's like one designer's furniture in a showroom bigger than, <laughs> way bigger than any one designer in the world has. You said you learned a lot from those lean times. So what do you think the key lesson is from that juncture? You know, think harder about stuff. There was a friend of mine that loaned me some money to open the store. <laughs> it wasn't a ton, uh, but he was a really smart business guy. And he told me all successful businesses start in rough times. The ones that start in good times don't learn enough to make it. They don't get that foundation because uh, then when times get hard, they don't know how to weather. So I took that to heart and just kind of used that. I was like, okay, I'm going to just figure out how to make what I'm doing work on a really limited budget. Learn how to go behind on rent and how to talk to your landlord or how to, you know, how to just navigate that stuff, how to tell your employees like, hey, we can't do this lay people off and then have them say, fuck you, we're coming to work. And <laughs> so, you know, just all those things that are hard. So when the next crash came around, you know, we were like wizards handling it. Sure. We learned to do the right things to scale back on. It's really hard, but we knew how to how to manage a business. I mean, being a business person is not something I was inherently interested in. I think I was interested in the problem solving part of it. I think of it as a creative process. So I'm able to weather it. So now BDDW has had uh, several good years. Uh, it sounds like you've been through some highs and lows, but we've got to get to M. Crow and Philadelphia. The fun and, part, yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was kind of like one long low, and then it just started to creep up. And then by the time it hit up and stayed up, it was like this small little company that went beyond paying its rent and its people and stuff. And it was super exciting because we kind of stood out in this weird way because we did make it. But yeah, now it's, uh, you know, we have almost 100 people and we make money. And not a ton, but, you know, not as much as I should, but enough to do all sorts of creative fun things. Let's talk about your operation so that we have like a visual of what it looks like. You've, you've got a compound in Philadelphia where you do all kinds of things. Yep. I started in Brooklyn. I had a you know, big space for Brooklyn, but then I finally discovered Philadelphia. Me and about 12 or 15 of my people, we all just moved to Philly kind of on a whim and just fell in love with Philly because it's just full of possibilities and big, empty cheap buildings. I ended up buying a five acre like industrial compound, this big single story building with three acres of land right in the middle of like well, one of the worst industrial ghettos of Philly and no shortage of space, which coming from New York for 15 years was uh, a breath of fresh air. There you make furniture. I understand you also have a kiln and you have some animals and what all is going on there? We have five goats. Um, we had some chickens and a big outdoor space with pizza oven and stuff. But in the building, we have basically pretty much every machine you can imagine except for glass blowing. I mean, we have uh, every high-tech five-axis CNC machine and metal stone and wood, uh, laser cutters, uh, Water little jet? mini foundry. We have, oh, yeah, have five-axis five axis water jet. Ah. We have uh, you know, a 3D printer. We have a little garment studio. Weaving, dyeing, sewing. 
all of that? Uh, well, we sew here, but I'm actually in the process of buying, uh, and I don't want to jinx this, so I don't want to talk too much about it, but my own vintage shuttle and fabric mill in PA that we're in the process of owning. They were, they were closing, so we're in the process of supporting and helping figure out how to have our own mill. So we're going to be producing our own fabrics for our own clothing. We do a lot of like one-off pieces of clothing where we'll hand paint like a Hawaiian print on a shirt or hand paint a sweatshirt and hand dye it with different sawdust and you know crap we dig out of the yard. And I'm really into all that like plants and dyeing stuff. Really small scale, it's more like a hobby level but it winds up being the BDDW clothing. We do all our own leather in-house, our own coloring, our leather, uh, build our own turntables for our little radio station we're launching. Where do all of these new ideas and these new business ventures come from? Is it just basically like one day you're like, oh, you know what would be really cool if we did this? Is it kind of you steering in that direction? I wish you could call it steering, but it's me, like battering and ramming and pulling and annoying. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a joke. We actually, at these days, make more money when I leave town um, because I stopped all the creative. Uh, you know, we're still, like, always too busy with furniture. We're not really trying to grow and sell more, really. We're just trying to stabilize and increase our profit margins so they're solid so I can have time to do more fun stuff. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the business side of things because running your own company it involves a lot of, you know, number crunching and HR and all of that other stuff. Yeah. So it sounds to me like you kind of, like I said, steer the ship in all kinds of directions. But it sounds like you're you're surrounded by a really great long term supportive system that's kind of helped navigate. Yes, for sure. The problem is that being around long term, there is uh, susceptible to my inadequacies of, you know what I mean? Because they've learned from me, but, but we get along and we just support each other. We're all really smart and good problem solvers, but we really don't know how to run a normal business. <laughs> so we kind of invented our own way of doing things. My leadership is, you know, more about like, love your job or get the hell out of here because this is cool and it's not always fun. There's been some nightmare eras, normal business problems, but amplified. Um, and I think it's kind of reciprocal to, you know, any work environment is like, if it's going to be fulfilling, you're going to have heartbreak and mm -hmm. friendship with, you know, you have to take all that stuff with it. So I'm, you know, I hire friends still, you know, most people say don't hire friends and I'm like, yeah, but we get, you know, we get to have BDDW and MCRO, which is like different in the way that people care about it in a different way. Uh, and people burn it out and there's problems and HR is a nightmare and, you know, but at the end of the day, we still build like crazy beautiful stuff and we get to come to work every day and go, holy shit, look at, you know, look what's going on over there. No matter what somebody else is doing working here, they get to walk by, you know, turntables being built for a radio station or a table being built for their rock star hero or, a, you know, some random piece of clothing or just never ending intrigue with the process of making stuff that we're surrounded by in this giant building. So that's usually worth it to, to people to, you know, to keep showing up. It sounds like a, a wonderland for anyone who's interested in how things get made and grow. And I love to make things of all kinds of things. And so just hearing you talk about your machinery, but then there's goats outside, like my heart is all a flutter. <laughs> you know, but it is, it's like, I liken it to like a, a porn convention. <laughs> yeah. when every 15 year old guy likes sex and he would sign to go to like, yeah, I'll go there every day for nine years. Hell yeah. If I can go once, you know what I mean? But it's like after a week, you want to put a bullet in your head. 
you know, because it's, it's kind of like, it is like a bit of an orgy sometimes, and you can only do that for so long. And it's very exhausting, you know, the intensity of all these creative people, you know, all supporting my vision. I've done it before, so it's a difficult thing for qualified creative people to support somebody else's vision. I have a lot of amazing people who are the most humble talented combination people you can find uh but it is a tricky thing you know you can imagine um mm-hmm. and it is very much my singular vision you know everyone should have their own say in everything except for in my world <laughs> so if I, you know i have a million ideas and i want to see them done and i work for 20 years or 30 years to get this done and I, if you want to talk about what i want to do great but it's about me um so it is a, it's tricky at times and you know there is people i work with grace who's my right hand and and she's kind of the president of the company she gets to work and creative stuff 30% of the time she does amazing stuff in my within my vision and it's fine and I have a decorative art department now that we do the puzzles I don't know if you've seen those <laughs> I need you to orient us and all of our listeners BDDW and then you also have M Crow and you're making all of these things out of Philadelphia and that includes mugs and puzzles and garments and i i know there's beer and bees and and all kinds of stuff yeah i mean let me i'll bring the uncrow part in so it makes sense we have two little bee farms okay before you talk about bees (laughs) mcrow is a really fascinating origin story so tell us what Okay, yeah, I think I can explain that. I wound up doing furniture as I said and having to make a choice over those that good 10 to really 20 years, but a solid 10 years, I kind of got trapped into being like the furniture guy when it really wasn't my first pursuit. And as I could afford to breathe and then live and then, you know, have kids and partners in life and actually do that and have a life. I also have all these other creative pursuits that I am kind of more interested in than furniture. Most of the time, um, in my hometown, rural Oregon, the general store in this little ghost town of Lostine that I used to drive by that was something I'd loved as a child was closing after 110 years. You know, the classic story was like a, you know, little general store in a tiny little town. And so I decided I would buy it. And I had this kind of epiphany of like, I'm going to do all the things that I wanted to do from when I was a kid, from cheese making to knife making. And I'm going to like make this little brand and keep the store open and try and reattach myself to rural America where I came from and is a large part of me and make this full circle kind of experience. I started designing and making all the things I ever wanted to make. In our spare time here and there, we would start to add these little products to the store. So I bought the store, kept it open, and it's been uh, three years now. It's a little convenience store in a town of 200 in the middle of nowhere, but I opened up one in New York eventually. And since I was a little kid, I used to have this idea of designing and making everything I use. I'd be looking at my shoes and thinking of all the things, you know, the knife in my hand to the light switch to everything around me. I was like, I want to make everything from scratch. I want to like develop the plastics to make my own light switch and too ambitious of a plan, obviously, but we would just take apart everything we had and build stuff. And I would, God, I was trying to make uh, whiskey when I was, you know, from the encyclopedic. We tried to build a rocket engine in our bedroom and we almost burnt the place down. But anyway, (laughs) M. Crow. M. Crow was about me and the things that I missed out on because I always felt like, oh, I haven't 
haven't done anything with my life. I've got to like finish all these projects I want to do. So I call it a little awkward collision of things that, uh, okay, I have this brand and it's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's as tricky as my life was to make work. And so I'm going to just try to do this thing with all the things I want to do. I don't care if it takes me 20 years. I'm just going to slowly, you know, just want to keep buying tools and making shit for Impro. It's an exhaustive list of things that I'm doing. I mean, like we literally dig our own clay here on my two acre property in Philly for the BDDW ceramics. So I searched out there and I found clay in Oregon. So we're building a production clay facility out there to do all ceramic, including our own beer bottles for the brewery. We're starting a brewery. We're actually are we're already on our second year of growing this heritage barley that my friend is growing that his grandpa invented. And so I'm building this whole thing in Oregon, putting my history back together as well as an economic development project for this valley that was uh, my great great grandparents were the ones that helped kick the Indians out and homestead that valley, um, sadly. So it's where I'm, my family's from, where I'm from, and like a real, in a real sense. But it's got a really shitty economy and it's a very tough place to grow up, especially, you know, you know, on our divided political spectrum today. So anyways, I just want to put that all together. <laughs> That's one of my biggest pursuits in the last two to three years is really that M. Crow thing, uh, starting the brewery and the distillery out there. I have a 23-acre property out there trying to build like a giant workshop. I'm designing the building from the ground up and trying to make this super eco-industrial building where the different industries share uh, heating and cooling because it's kind of my one of my favorite specialties is uh, engineering, heating, and cooling and uh ecological building of things on an industrial scale. My buddy has a lumber mill in Oregon. We're building an industrial kiln that run off wood heat that runs the kilns, which will be making beer bottles for the brewery. And the waste heat of the kiln makes the beer. We're also doing like a big ice, ice ponds to cool the beer instead wow. of using like uh, heat pumps. All right. You've got um, a million projects going on, but it seems like at the root of it, if it helped me understand if I'm going to distill out your passions, your passions are not just making things, but making things from scratch and connecting the divide between rural America and modern making and sort of mindful manufacturing. Does that resonate? Yeah. Am I yeah. on, on track? I think all those, yeah, all that stuff fits in there. I really don't even know how to describe it, but yeah, that's all that's true. I don't know if I have a goal. I think a lot of it just comes from my own personal experience. You know, we're always looking for ourselves. Just reconnecting the totality of me and my experiences and like just following my interests. But I see myself going back to there and going, wow, I grew up here and this is how I grew up and why I was depressed and sad. And, you know, uh, my designs became about this, my problem solving. I, uh, I host a group of kids to come from that, my small town to New York and introduce them to all my famous friends and show them the back door to companies and whatnot and give them like a week tour of New York. Watching through their eyes has been really inspiring, I guess, to see myself and where I came from. That's just really hard to describe, but there is definitely something very personal about the, the project that is, uh, just something I feel like I just need to do or want to do. Um, not in like a super serious way, but like I find myself discovering my, in my childhood. Clearly there's a personal thing there. Like you're, you're offering a window to these kids that you didn't have growing up. Is that about sparking their curiosity or letting them know kind of what else is out there so that they can have a sense of hope? Teaching kids at that crucial juncture of their life that was a you know, really important emotional time for me. I would love to just show kids anything. I think it's just healthy for kids, you know, 12 to 20 
to just show them weird shit, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> whatever it is, it's a different, you know, a rock star, or I could be a, you know, I could be a redneck if I wanted to, even though I grew up in a, you know, conservative family in New York. I can be different than what I know, and I think it just helps us also understand you know, I mean, the obvious divisions in our country are in humanity of like, you know, other, and we don't understand that. I grew up in that really rural town where there was only just white people <laughs> that just voted a certain way and thought a certain thing, mostly. Uh, had no idea what a Hasidic neighborhood in Brooklyn was like, or, you know, things that just blew my mind. Or even when I went to Italy when I was younger, those kind of things of just like, wow, you should get out and see stuff. And I grew up with people that have different politics than me, and I love them. When I say politics, I just mean everything from the way we get along, I guess, um, without getting too heavy. But uh, I can get along with anybody, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I understand what you're saying. And I think as we move forward, people who put energy into integrating as opposed to separating are really doing the work of healers. I mean, and that sounds like what you're more invested in is is integrating at least all aspects of yourself and in doing so, creating bridges for other people to see. Well, thank you very very, very much. Well said, and I can say it. Yes. Yeah, totally. That's it is. I I, I kind of jokingly say I'm Crow's making America great again. (laughs) But it's like, I still have that effort and belief in me. You know, I'm an employer of 100 people making things in America and I love America. I have friends that like they're pissed off because of what's really happening in, to them and there is stuff, real problems that are out there in the rural communities that are like I actually agree with some of the things. If you know the, the entire spectrum of the problems, it isn't, you know, it isn't just politics. It is like real problems, you know, and I see it as like a, there's a cultural vacuum that's, you know, the money and the culture and the design and all the fancy culturally elite crap that we get, I am a part of in New York is like, it's a problem at a certain point when people forget what, you know, even people that I, you know, believe religiously or politically different than I do aren't bad people, all of them, but there is like a, a real division. I mean, I consider myself a liberal and I can't stand Trump, but and not perfect. The way we're handling things isn't perfect because we still are a country and we still are Americans and we still do have to all get along. Well, I hear what you're saying. And there's a real danger to defaulting to that sort of black and white thinking where we're all right, you're all wrong or exactly. we're good people and you're bad people. And yep. I've always felt like you can get a lot more done from the inside. So from understanding things from both perspectives and working towards integration, I mean, I feel like that's probably the most powerful thing you can be spending your energy on. Thank you. Yeah, very well said. I I totally agree. You know, I can grow barley on a farm and try and build an industry in a town that needs that, whether it's not about politics, it's more about... Let's do something cool out here. Happens to create some jobs for you, but it also gives you a window into, you know, craft beer. (laughs) Yeah, totally. We're going to build this small brewery that's going to be growing our own barley, malting it in the field. And then we're going to dig. You know, he was showing me where the clay is on near the field where we're growing it so I can dig clay to make the beer bottles. Man. For the, you know, the first batch. And try and do it with zero electricity. We're going to use the natural fed water pressure from the irrigation. And it's like 30 PSI of just through the gravity. So I've got that energy to figure out how to run the whole process of malting and brewing and you know, I would just as soon be designing that system as I would be actually more so than I would be making furniture these days. It sounds like you're um, in your happy place when you're satisfying a curiosity. 
like it doesn't sound to me like yeah. you do like repeat tasks at all. It's more about learning something that you don't know and figuring stuff out. Yeah, problem solving and connectivity when it involves physics or science or materials and how that works, and then applying people to that. <laughs> That's yeah. <laughs> okay. Any of that stuff, just seeing it all come together and is uh, <laughs> super fascinating. I do want to know if there is something coming up that you think our listeners should be on the lookout for. You've got a lot going on, but if there was like one thing that you think, you know, you want to highlight that's coming in the pipeline. The coolest stuff is coming up that isn't out yet. There are little radio station podcast that we're doing is fun and weird and it's, there's no real agenda to it. It's just kind of like local people are starting it. Uh, there in Oregon. I'm doing radio shows, totally a podcast, but we have like, we're treating it like a radio station. Cool. Um, it's going to be live, which is cool. And it's going to be run like a radio station with different people doing different shows and good or bad. There's no real kids from the high school. I'm setting up a little program so they can like sell ads, local ads and do it locally in uh, Oregon. And then when you go into the Sam Crow in New York, there'll be a window that looks like a recording studio in the back. And the people, when there's nobody in there, the people uh, running the store, selling you stuff, uh, be running a live radio station. And, you know, sometimes the record will go to the end and <laughs> make just a click noise because they're actually helping a customer and then they'll come back and say the temperature and then we'll do our own little beer ads for our brewery. Okay. What's the best way for our listeners to keep tabs on all these projects? Is there a social media website where they can follow you? Yeah, there's there's a mcrow company at bddw underscore et cetera. Uh, this Tyler Hayes, and in there you'll find enough hashtags with all the different things that we're up to. Okay, great. We'll include all those but links. But if you get on one of those, you'll find, yeah, you'll find them if you get on one of them. I think they're all kind of connected. Okay. Well, this has been um, a dizzyingly exciting conversation. <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and I'm really excited about your mission. Even though you keep saying you have no agenda, you clearly have a heart that's steering you in a really meaningful direction. And I think that comes through in your products and we all feel that. So, wow. Thank you very much. It's kind. I thought I had a lot on my own plate, but now I'm like, Oh, well, I'm no Tyler Hayes. (laughs) That's like my new thing. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. Take care, Tyler. Thanks. Take care. Bye. 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 Holy shit, dude. Ah, I feel like my brain is spaghetti now. (laughs) Me too. I definitely feel better about the amount of work I have on my own plate and the fact that I thought I had too many ideas. But (laughs) yeah, I mean, how do you get from like being a dirtbag contractor to having 100 employees? Because that does take real people believing you, real relationships. Somehow they got to trust that they're going to make a living from what you're doing. And Clearly, he's a trustworthy guy, but he's also a guy with so many different pursuits. I feel like that lack of focus might have scared some people off or or has the potential to scare some people off. Yeah, I think it could. But I also get the feeling just from listening to him talk about, you know, his business pursuits. He has a real confidence in his ability. And I think that and he's obviously a talker. So I think that, you know, a lot of that can really get you anywhere if you're charismatic and you're a good talker and you can you know make things happen and I think he had a proven track record of doing really good work in a lot of different ways and I think once he was able to say okay I want to focus on furniture um, he had already made a lot of contacts in that world yeah that's true and he'd probably already proven himself to the people around him so I think that might have had something to do with it 
I love that he's this like self-reliant homesteader barley growing beekeeping goat having water jet cutting you know tinkerer extraordinaire and he's also like a sensitive emotional creative who grows pansies and sews garments like I love I love that full spectrum of his personality you know we all have to find our identities and defend our identities while they're still raw and uh, I think that period for him was really probably what I don't know was helpful in terms of being confident and self-reliant in his adulthood what do you think? Yeah, I I do I, I definitely do and I, I loved thinking about his whole life as just this merging of two things, which is the emotional with the practical or the engineering with the beauty and the design. Mm -hmm. It kind of all comes together in everything that he does. I like to think of him as somebody with a really wide wingspan and he's able to pull from two really different worlds and swirl it together and, and flap it. <laughs> and get airborne. Yeah, you know? by the way, shout out to badass moms out there fixing their own washing machines. I don't, They don't get enough credit, but that's badass. Right? And also badass art teachers who spot talent and get him a scholarship yes. and support and nurture that creativity. Totally. One of the things that I really liked that he said was that, you know, during hard times, a lot of businesses succeed um, more so than businesses born in good times. I don't know that that's actually true, but I think what he's saying is that if you can get through like the shittiest time of your business at the inception of your business, that you're more likely to weather the storm of owning your own business and running it over time. And I think that's a, a really key point to note because we did see like this rise of makers, you know, in the, in the times where the economy was rough and there were job shortages, we would see all these new business owners and new and makers arising from the ashes of unemployment. And I think that a lot of times there's a lot of good businesses and good business. You do just learn a lot if you have to make do. You know what I mean? I love what you're saying about rising from the ashes of unemployment, all this whole maker movement. I think there was also a, an increased interest in self-reliance because we all felt kind of helpless when the world was crashing down around us. And it got us more interested in how can we, you know, have control over our material world in a, in a way that's a little bit more within our own wherewithal. I do admire what he's doing, trying to help the local economy in the area uh, where he grew up and also really try to give back and help the community in and around Philadelphia just you know, creating more jobs and coming up with new ways of doing things and also, you know, developing his own or growing or making his own materials to make the things he makes. I mean, that's just incredibly resourceful. Yeah. It's like, oh, you know what? Like, I want to make ceramics. I'm going to go find some clay. <laughs> you know, just like... I know. Some people are like, look at me. I'm sourcing my stuff fair trade. And he's like, look at me. I'm growing my shit or digging it up. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I think what's so interesting about him wanting to make all the source materials is that he, I don't know if this is conscious or not, but he's having an influence all the way back down to the earth, right? And then the people who have to manage the earth, the people who get jobs from whatever the earth produces, the plastics, the raw materials, the the foundry. He's not content with just making pretty things 
from pretty materials he finds, he wants to impact the whole chain, the whole food chain of the whole manufacturing. Yeah, I, I think it's about going back to the beginning of his life where he was fixing machines, taking things apart, getting to know where things come from and how they're made. But then he's also watering a garden <laughs> and seeing how that can grow. And I think he kind of merged all of those things together and would much rather do it himself mm -hmm. and rely on himself and his resources than, you know, rely on someone else. Mm -hmm. And not only that, but he seems clearly invested in helping other people learn those skills and rely on themselves as well. It's mm -hmm. a ripple effect that seems to be generating a huge positive return. Can I just say that I would like a petting zoo in my workspace too? Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and go to cleverpodcast.com to sign up for our newsletter, read the show notes and see images of Tyler's work. Connect with us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook at Clever Podcast. We always love to hear from you. This episode of Clever was edited by Chris Modal of Your Studio with music by L1011. 